Some of you may know that we, uh, right now we have one MCC elder on sabbatical, and uh, this year I am celebrating my 50th year as a clergy person by going half-time instead of full-time. And so while we have been really happy to loan you Lily for the last few months, I want you to know that there is a huge collective sigh of relief passing through the entire MCC senior staff right now uh, that uh, we're going to have her all to ourselves again for a while. Uh, I know that she's meant a great deal to you. You've meant a great deal to her. Uh, and we thank you for nurturing her and taking care of her during this time. Uh, and we welcome you back to that other table where you are also so important, Lily. I know that you are in a sermon series entitled, What Would Jesus Really Do? Taking a deeper, a new look at a number of the most important issues that we face on our spiritual journeys. And that the subject for today is sexuality and spirituality. And I'm really honored to be able to be with you today and, and share some thoughts about that as we look at it in a different way. In 1976, I had just become the pastor of MCC in Chicago. Uh, I had just come out, and one day I got a phone call from Reverend Elder Troy Perry, the founder of MCC, saying, you're about to get a phone call from the National Council of Churches, and when they ask you to do what they're going to ask you to do, just say yes. And so a couple of days later, I got the call, and it was an invitation to become a consulting member to the new National Council of Churches Commission on Marriage and the Family. And so I said yes, and not long after that, I got an invitation to go to New York City for the first meeting of this new group to be held in the National Council of Churches building on Riverside Drive. I got there, the appointed time, the appointed place, found myself sitting around a huge table with about 25 or 30 other people, all of whom were representatives from different member denominations and communities, all part of the National Council of Churches, almost all of them at least twice as old as I was. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, what am I doing here? And the guy who was leading this meeting called it to order, said a few things, and then he looked right at me and said, I bet you wonder what you're doing here. And, and then he said, you're here because there is a disconnect in Christianity, and it is even reflected in the name of this commission. He said, we're not here to talk about marriage and the family. He said, this commission is here to talk about sexuality and spirituality, but they wouldn't let us use the word sexuality. And so we had to call it the commission on marriage and the family. And he said, to tell you the truth, all the churches represented around this table, most of our churches are not going to do anything about this. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about talking about it. But we're not going to do anything. And so MCC, it's up to you. Please be that church that does the work to help us understand how to bring our sexuality and our spirituality back together. Now, that commission, like most commissions, ended up doing almost nothing about it. But they were right. There is a disconnect in Christianity between sexuality and spirituality, between body and soul. And today we're going to talk about how and when and where that happened and what we can do to help reconcile our sexuality and spirituality and keep body and soul together. We're going to ask questions like, 
from where did all of these sex negative ideas and feelings and beliefs come that have shaped so much of Christianity for the last 2,000 years? Was this God's intention? Is this in the Bible? Is, is Jesus responsible for this? Who gets to decide these things? And if we wanted to change it, how would we go about changing it? So let's begin with a couple of important definitions when we talk about sexuality and spirituality. When we talk about sexuality, we're talking about more than sex. And when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about more than religion. When we talk about sexuality, we are certainly talking about our capacity for sexual activity, but we're also talking about sensuality and intimacy and affection and eroticism and love. We're talking about a large part of the way we reach out to and relate to people in the world around us through all of our senses. And when we talk about spirituality, we are certainly talking about our capacity for religious beliefs and religious practices, but we're talking about much more than that. We're also talking about wholeness and salvation and liberation and reconciliation and wonder and awe and peace and justice. Our spirituality is also a very important way that we relate to people and the world all around us. So as we talk about sexuality and spirituality, we're not just talking about sex and religion. We're talking about these essential parts of the way in which God created us. In a way, our spirituality is that part of us that reach out, reaches out to other people. And our sexuality, I mean, our sexuality is that part that reaches out to other people. And our spirituality is that part that reaches out to God so that through our sexuality, we come to know others. And through our spirituality, we come to know the other. But somehow in Christianity, we have been given the message that our sexuality and our spirituality are competing, even warring parts of ourselves between which we must choose. St. Origen said there is a love of the flesh which comes from Satan, and there is also another love which comes from the spirit. And no one can experience both loves only when you have despised everything having to do with your body can you experience spiritual love. Unfortunately, that's the legacy which many of us have inherited because it is the legacy that has shaped the Christian message for the last 2,000 years. But today the church is hearing an increasing and louder and louder number of voices of people who simply refuse to choose. And we are among those voices. We bear witness to the spiritual poverty of having to deny our spirituality in order to embrace our sexuality. And we bear witness to the equally impoverished experience of having to deny our sexuality in order to practice a spirituality which teaches us the absolute virtue of honesty and accepts us only as long as we lie about these important parts of who we are. I believe that not only is our sexuality not in conflict with our spirituality or even just incidental to it, 
but coming from one common and seemingly inexhaustible source and demanding the same harmony and, and, and running on the same energy, it feels to me like a reconciliation of sexuality and spirituality is essential before we can even know God and certainly before we can become the people that God created us to be. But that sex is going to, that success is going to require us to be able to recover the sexuality that the church never told us is an integral part of our spirituality. And it's going to require our being able to recover the spirituality that the rest of the world never told us is an equally important part of our spirituality. It is together that they allow us to express God's intention that we not live in isolation, but that we live in relationship both with each other and with God. So what happened? How did we get here? First of all, it is important to begin by saying the idea that our bodies might be somehow shameful or that sex might somehow be dirty is not in the Bible. Of course we can find some sex-negative language and thinking in the Bible. But when you ask what the Bible's comprehensive witness is, it is that human love derives from and reflects divine love. In Hebrew scripture, the body is praised as a wonderful creation. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. You shaped me. First inside, then outside. You formed me, O God, in my mother's womb. I thank you, most high God. You are breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. What a creation. In the Hebrew language, the exact same word is used to describe Jacob's attraction to Leah and David's love for Jonathan, and God's love for us. In Christian scripture, the body receives its highest honor in the idea that God chose to come to us in human flesh. Now, how did we ever get from there to the teaching in the early church that it is preferable and even superior to remain celibate and never engage in sexual activity at all, leading many of the leaders of the early Christian church to oppose marriage between men and women? Did you know that? We're not first on the list here. <laughs> People like Eustathius, the, the bishop of Sebastia, taught that marriage between women and men was a sin and forbade marriage among Christians. Many of the other early bishops performed marriage, but only as long as the vows contained the vow of agape tie, which meant that the couple would swear to live together in a chaste and sexless marriage. Or how are we to understand the people who shaped Christianity's early message about sexuality, the one that we have inherited like Eve Lushartra, who admonished Christians to abstain from sex on Thursday and Friday in remembrance of Christ's capture and crucifixion, and on Saturday in honor of the Virgin Mary, and on Sunday to remember the resurrection, and on Monday in honor of the dead? You get the idea. Even at the beginning of the 20th century, 
Some Christian preachers preached against what they called excessive sex, which they defined as more than once every three years, <laughs> and then only for heterosexual married couples over the age of 30 and for the purpose of procreation. Now, of course, the answer to the question, how did we get here, is very complicated, but there is one simple way to begin to understand this, and this is it. Within 100 years after the death of Jesus, Christianity was almost totally separated from its Jewish roots. So that all those people who thought and wrote about sexuality in early Christianity were deeply influenced by Greek thought and philosophy. The Greeks who were the first ones to separate body and soul and say the body is bad and the soul is good. Plato wrote, the body is an impediment which by its presence prevents the soul from being saved. That belief has echoed down through Christianity for 2,000 years. But here's the truth of that. Our Jewish religious ancestors including the one named Jesus, would find that appalling. Would find that appalling. The next thing that happened is that they decided that God was no longer in here, but God was out there somewhere, and that the God out there somewhere was devoid of all emotion, especially was devoid of any kind of passion. But there's a major problem with that, and it is that the witness of both the Old Testament and the New Testament ranging over God's involvement with women, men, and children for 3,000 years shows us a God who is not somewhere out there, but someone who is in here, someone who is intimately involved in human life and history, a God who is not passionless, but a God who is demonstratively passionate. The God of the Bible is sometimes angry, sometimes jealous, sometimes tender, sometimes heartbroken, but always, always fiercely, passionately in love with us. And so in love with us that she's even willing to wait around for centuries just hoping for one faithful response from us in return. But still those other ideas got so deeply embedded in our faith tradition that it's very difficult for many of us to embrace both our spirituality and our sexuality and to call both of them holy. And so we have missed seeing and knowing God in one of the closest, most obvious places and ways in our bodies and in our sexuality. And that's true even though we're talking about a God who intentionally created us with both the capacity and the desire to reach out and touch each other physically. We're talking about a religion based on the belief that God became human flesh in order to be able to reach out and touch us physically and about a theology professing that God chose to make human flesh the one place where the human and the divine would come together in such a powerful and important way that they could be reconciled forever. Because these beliefs 
are really the heart of Christianity. The church could have specialized in keeping body and soul together. The church could have specialized in reconciling sexuality and spirituality. Some religions do. The church could have just remained neutral about it. Some do. But ours had to deny this way of knowing God and be silent in proclaiming the part of its own message that could have brought healing and reconciliation to this devastating separation. Christianity chose to reject what seems like it ought to be obvious in a creation as extravagantly diverse as ours is. And that is simply that two things can be different without one being better than the other. And one of the great tragedies of all of this, a tragedy which we know so well, is how many people now find the church irrelevant. Not because there's no need for God in their lives, but because there's no place for their sexuality in the church. Listen again to just a couple of words from that passage from Colossians that we heard earlier in the service. In Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. That tells us that it was God's intention that Christ would make everything one, literally by reminding it that it was already one. The work of Christ in the world and in our lives is to save what has been lost, to heal what has been wounded, to unite what has been fragmented, to mend what has been broken. And the failure of the church as the body of Christ is in neglecting to offer its own gifts of salvation and healing and reconciliation to this brokenness. And by this neglect, the church has caused the very thing it was sent to prevent. It has lost the thing it was sent to save. And it has denied the power of Christ to hold all things in unity. But if it has been a false understanding of God that has caused all this distortion around sexuality and spirituality, where can we turn for the truth about God that will enable us to heal this. Once again, it is to our own theology of incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. According to Christian scripture, the incarnation which began in Jesus Christ continues in you and me. Through the church, the body of Christ, the word continues to be made flesh in the world. That means your body is a lot more than just a vehicle to tote your soul around. Or even worse, an impediment to your soul ever being able to get saved and go to heaven. Instead, your body is a continuation of God's presence in the world in a physical way. 
You are the word continuing to be made flesh because it is God's hope that it is through you that the word will continue to be spoken aloud in the world. Now, I would like to propose a potentially scandalous question today. Is it possible that not only does the word become flesh, but that the flesh can also become word? Is there a knowledge? Is there a wisdom? Is there a revelation that comes to us through walking through this life in these bodies as body cells in this embodied way that is not a threat to but actually essential for us to learn to be spiritual in the truest sense of the word. If the flesh becomes word, can we speak God's words to each other with our bodies? Can we tell the truth with our bodies? Can we lie with our bodies? If the flesh becomes word, can we speak with our bodies to say yes to God's intention that all of our sexual relationships be just and mutual and faithful and consenting and loving? Might we even say that our salvation comes both from the word becoming flesh and from the flesh becoming word? You know, in the Bible, the word for salvation and the word for healing come from the same word. Well, the church has told me a lot about the salvation of my soul, but what about the salvation of my sexuality? What about sexual salvation? What about healing my sexuality. When Christian scripture talks about salvation, I believe it is talking about being healed all the way through to wholeness in every aspect of who we are as the people of God. And if that's true, then our being able to find a way to heal the brokenness between our sexuality and our spirituality ought to be at the top of the list of everything we talk about when we get together. Because if we are honest, we will acknowledge that it is one of the most broken parts of our humanness, which gets manifest in our society every day in horrible, violent, unjust ways. I want to close with a simple statement, which from everything else we have said, seems clearly and profoundly true and uniquely important to most of us in this room, and here it is. The Christian church's problem is not with homosexuality. It's with human sexuality. All of you... All of you who are LGBT people and you've heard yourself described over and over again as the problem, you are not the problem. If the church could get human sexuality right, it wouldn't have any problem with sexual minority people. But the ignorance and the superstition and the fear continue. And let me tell you, when ignorance and superstition and fear grow up, they're called bigotry. And bigotry kills people. And it's killing young LGBT people all over the world today. So there is still work to be done, but it is not too late. 
It is not too late for our voices and for the voice of our church to be heard, for us to share what we have learned because of the unique journey that we are on in this world, not just for our community, but for the whole family of humankind to be able to heal and reconcile sexuality and spirituality and keep body and soul together. Amen.